Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Andrews. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. As Andrew mentioned, we are going to have the privilege of hearing Jessie's story in a little while and then baptizing her. And so on the note of baptism, um, I wanted to look at the passage which runs just before Jesus' baptism. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 3. Um, we're going to look at verses 11 to 12 in Matthew chapter 3. Does anyone have a church Bible? Just want to give me a reference for that. 1424, page 1424, if you have a church Bible. We are going to look at Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to specifically look at verse 11 to 12. But before we do that, I just want to give you a little bit of the context by reading the rest of Matthew chapter 3. So let me read for that, that for us now. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He's describing John the Baptist there. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to bat for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones to, ra is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he goes on. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you have uh, given us your word, that you've revealed yourself to us. And we want to ask that you would come and speak to us this morning as we unpack these words about you, Lord. I pray you'd help us to have a, a bigger vision of who you are, a truer vision of who you are. Lord, if there's things that we believe about you that are wrong, Lord, would you come and show that to us, Lord? Would you come and speak into our hearts, Lord? Would you come and lead us to yourself through your word? Amen. Amen. Okay, well, so just to kind of set the scene then, really, what we've got here is John the Baptist, who's something of a herald. He's bringing something of a, a warning to the people who are listening. He's right at the beginning, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's really saying is you've got to You've got to be prepared for Jesus' arrival. You've got to change your life. Repent means literally to turn around. So he, he's, what he's giving them is really a kind of warning, a kind of message to be prepared for the arrival of Jesus. You can't ignore Jesus' arrival. What he's saying is that God's reign is coming. It's called, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What that means literally is there's going to be a time when people, and the time has come now, when people recognize Jesus as king. In a kingdom, it's just that we recognize there's a king. So what he's saying is that Jesus has arrived, the king has arrived, and you need to be prepared for his arrival. I don't know about you, um, I, every, probably 
every few months, about a few times a year, I have a, a recurring bad dream. And um, this bad dream always takes roughly a similar kind of format. Um, I've done my A-levels, which are the uh, high school leaving a, uh, certificate in the UK, but for some reason, it's just after the, the year after, I have to go back and do my A-levels again. And um, it's kind of March time, so A-levels usually take about May time, um, and, and, and it's March, and the history syllabus has changed, and I've got no idea of the maths, because you know, every year as I have this dream, my, my maths knowledge is, is less and less. My familiarity with the A-level syllabus, I must say, is not very high. And so just kind of, I'm, I'm trying to negotiate with teachers, I'm trying to um, you know, say, OK, well, I don't need to know that, and I'm, I'm kind of rationalising, until I wake up and I realise that I did my A-levels about 12 years ago, and, <laughs> and it's all OK. But really, I feel I basically, without wanting to massively psychologize myself um, with, before you all, I basically feel that when I feel underprepared. That's, that dream usually signifies something going on in my heart that I'm worried about not being prepared for something. And actually, we all know that kind of nightmare of being unprepared for things, whether it be interviews or just doing our job or whatever. We all can, we can understand the perils of being underprepared. And that's exactly what John's saying to the people here. Don't ignore Christ's arrival. You must be prepared for him who is coming. Actually, the, 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 he really locates the, the rationale for why they need to be prepared for who Christ is in verse 11 to 12. And that's what I want to unpack for you this morning. The first reason he gives for them, for they, why they cannot ignore his arrival, is because of the magnitude of the claims that he makes about himself. He describes him as mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. What he's really saying here is that Jesus is making claims about himself that are of a fundamentally different order to John. Think about John. He's, he's a, a, really a religious teacher par excellence. He's, he's gathered the people a little bit earlier, uh, verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Ju- Jordan were going to him. So crowds have assembled on John. He's one of the most prominent teachers in, in the people of Israel. And yet John's saying, actually, this guy Jesus is far mightier than I am. He's, I'm not even worthy to be his servant. What he's hinting at is what will come clear as you, as you read through the rest of the Gospels is that actually Jesus is making claims about himself that are far different really to any claim of any other kind of spiritual leader. Really what he's focusing on, what I think will become clear actually, is he's, because he's making the claim to be divine, to be God in human form, to be God in the flesh. You know, uh, later on in the Gospels he said, if you've seen, uh, Philip asked him, when are you going to show us the Father? And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Now, actually, if you think about this for a moment, this is actually a, a unique, relatively unique claim. Um, think about Buddha, Muhammad, the Sikh gurus. Almost any other religious teacher has almost always claimed, actually, not to be God themselves, but to point to the one who is God. Jesus is making a very different claim to be God in the flesh himself. Actually, when you consider the magnitude of the claims that he makes about himself and the, the response to him, I think actually that should mean that even the greatest skeptic among you must at least give that a consideration. You know, if I was to come here and say, you know, I'm God, I'd be laughed out of the room. You know, it's a ridiculous claim. It's a, it's a preposterous claim. And yet actually, as Jesus goes about his, um, his ministry, people who, who are around him, people who see him, fa- uh, who are closest to him, actually have come, become convinced that's true, that he is actually God in the flesh. After he dies, many people claim to have seen him resurrected. The reality that he is God in the flesh, that he's more than a man, is proved by his resurrection. And then subsequently to that, thousands, and now to this day, millions, if not billions of people, are convinced of this claim. Actually, he's the only person who's claimed to be God 
and at this point stands with two billion people convinced of that fact. So if you're a skeptic here, I think that must at least give you cause for consideration. You must at least say, well, I must understand that. How is he alone the one who's claimed to be God? And so many people are convinced of this. But actually, it's because of this unique divine nature that uh, John is describing for us that John is then able to make two further claims about who Jesus is um, in, this, in these two verses, which I want to focus on for you this morning. The first, of one, the first of these is that he has come to baptize in Holy Spirit and fire. Now, obviously, this is a huge topic, but at the very heart of it, it's the promise that God has come to be present with us, both by his Spirit now and one day for all eternity. The second idea that John introduces us to is that Jesus is coming with a winnowing fork. It talks about a picture, a picture of separating wheat from chaff. What he's really describing is judgment. So really what John is describing here is that with Jesus' arrival comes a kind of choice, kind of absolute presence for God, to be with God for eternity, or ultimate separation from God for eternity. And actually almost like Jesus' arrival forces you to make that choice, to respond to that. And I think it's important that we unpack, to engage with these two alternatives this morning, particularly the question of judgment. There's a few reasons for that. The first of which is, I think for the average secular Londoner, this idea of God's judgment is one that will stick in your throat, or will be one that is hard to swallow. You will, actually, probably that's a bit of an understatement. I suspect that for many secular Londoners, this idea that God would judge you is probably one of the most offensive elements of Christianity. You almost have a visceral, emotional reaction to this claim. You say, how could God judge people? How could he send people to hell? And for others, it might just say it doesn't feel plausible. How does this fit with the idea uh, of God's love? How are these two ideas of judgment and, and love compatible? So we need to answer that question. But also, I think as a result of that kind of reaction in culture, I think actually this has become a very confused area within the church. There are some uh, kind of more liberal end of the spectrum in the church who have questioned that this is a teaching of the Bible. And so we need to look into that and say, is that, is that fair? There's others who have who've taken this idea and, and somewhat bastardized this teaching and used it really as a, something of a, a stick to beat people with. You've used it as an excuse to um, visit intolerance or hatred on people. Think about that Phelps family. It was not, not so much in the news now, but a few years ago, they kind of, they're the guys who picketing funerals, God hates fags, horrible, uh, really aggressive um, intolerance, abuse, whatever you call it. And really, and they were kind of using this idea of judgment just as a way to, to just persecute people, essentially. And of course, this is uh, throughout the history, this has been a topic that has been unpacked and used a lot of um, different illustrations, different pictures. Think about Dante's Inferno or you know, medieval monks with red hot pokers, all sorts of different images that, as a result, it's kind of hard to distinguish and say, well, what is the biblical picture here? What's the biblical reality? in a kind of contested area. I think not least because when thing, areas get contested, sometimes the church stops speaking about those things. And it's always a danger that the, the church would do that. So we must recover something of this truth, I think. So we have to ask, what is the reality? Is John the Baptist just speaking with hyperbole here? Or is he getting onto something that is actually true? I think the third reason we need to look at this is because it speaks to a very important question that every person needs to answer. What is God's orientation towards you? What is God's orientation toward you? Or to put it another way, is God for you or against you? Is God for you or against you? Last week, Andrew laid out uh, the case that the question, what, um, who do you think God is, tells you something very important about yourself. And I think it's absolutely true. 
But I want to give this even more important question than what do you think about God, and that's what does God think about you? Actually, it's a question that most of us wouldn't really think to ask, probably because we live in something of an age of, uh, one sociologist has described it as, uh, our view of God as moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. Really, that's the assumption that God kind of exists for our benefit, and he's just kind of a, a, a nice, kindly old man in the sky who, who feels kind of generally positive towards us, uh, benevolent, but isn't really interfering in our lives. Maybe he's looking out for you in some way, but it's not really, um, not have make any demands on your life. You can see that all sorts of ways. When, when people uh, die, regardless of what people believe, what they believe spiritually, there'll be a kind of people say, well, they're in a better place now. That kind of idea, almost a kind of given assumption that, well, you know, God's basically for them and they're probably just now with him. Or, um, yeah, like, you know, something good happens to you in life. You might say, oh, well, someone, out there's looking at, someone up there is looking out for you. So that kind of general idea which kind of seeps into our understanding. Actually, I would argue this is really something of a superficial image. It's not really based on any substance. And what I want to do is really say, well, what's the reality instead of that? Of course, if it is true that God is against you, that has significant consequences, even eternal consequences. And so ignoring it is not really an option for us. It's something that we need to know the answer to that question. So that's what I want to do and unpack for you this morning, really. What is the nature of God's judgment? What does it mean to be in God's presence? And then what's our response? So that brings me on to my first point, judgment. Jesus is opposed to sinners. Judgment. Jesus is opposed to sinners. So if you've been around Christianity for any sort of time period, that statement might slightly jar with you because you've heard the phrase, Jesus, friend of sinners. That's a wonderful phrase. It reflects the fact that as Jesus goes about his ministry, he's specifically often engaging with those people who the rest of the culture, the rest of society has kind of cast off and said, you know, you're a sinner, you're beyond God's grace. Um, and rejected. And actually, that's, that Jesus shows a, a remarkable gravitational pull towards them, a love for the people around him. It's wonderful truth. But if we only see this, I think we obscure a really vital truth. So what do we mean by judgment? Well, I think really the picture that we get of judgment here in this passage is that judgment is separation. If you dig into this picture, you'll see that really what John is talking about is a, is a separation between wheat and chaff. What he's describing in this winnowing fork, I know that many of you are not practiced in the practice of harvesting things regularly, so let me explain. Um, but it's, uh, and obviously I'm not myself either. Um, <laughs> but my understanding is you kind of toss up everything that you've um, harvested. You've got both the grain and you've got the chaff, the kind of um, husk outside at, around the grain, um, kind of basically worthless. You just, uh, and you basically... Um, you toss it up, the wheat falls to the ground because it's heavier, and the chaff is either blown away or separated off and then burnt. There's something of a kind of separation to get the wheat that is valuable and to push away the chaff. And actually, throughout Scripture, we get this theme, really, of a, of a day of reckoning, a final separation, a division taking place between, really, between those who obey God and are for God and those who are against God and do evil. Actually, we see this again in Matthew chapter 13. You don't need to turn there, but uh, it describes, Jesus describes the parable of the weeds. What it is is where the wheat is planted by a farmer and the weeds are sown by his enemy. So the, the servants come out and they can see this field with some weeds and some wheat. And obviously, like all concerned farmers, they're saying, well, should we just uproot that weed, those weeds? And but this, is, this, is Jesus's, this is the master's response in that parable. He said, let both grow together until the harvest. Let the weeds and the wheat grow together. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first 
and bind them in bundles to be burnt, but gather the wheat into my barn. So what it is, is again, this idea of separation and of ultimately a day of reckoning, a kind of moment in history when everyone will be called to account. And Jesus goes on to explain this, uh, this picture a little bit later in Matthew chapter 13. He says, Just as the weeds are gathered to be burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. It's a sobering truth, one that is almost difficult to hear. You know, I think the regardless of, of kind of the imagery, I know some of that imagery is... is um, We're not clear how much that imagery is literal, how much of it's metaphorical. The really important point I think you can take from either image is that it's not a, to be under judgment and to be separated from God is not a a pleasant experience. It's actually something that's rather terrifying. Um, Christopher Marlowe, an English playwright, uh, wrote a a play about Dr. Faustus. And this is, uh, Dr. Faustus um, has lived his life for himself and made a pact with evil. And this is his response Uh, or Christopher Marlowe's response through Dr. Faustus. He says, Mountains and hills, come, come and fall on me and hide me from the heavy wrath of God. Mountains and hills, come, come and fall on me and hide me from the heavy wrath of God. There's something in these pictures that is actually, I believe it's pastorally appropriate that you're almost, um, that you are gripped with something of the the, uh, terrifying nature of judgment. That's, that's important that you get that in the pictures. So what do we mean really by this separation? Actually, I should say, sorry, this separation is something you see throughout Jesus' ministry. You see at the end of the, Matthew's Gospel, he talks about the sheep and the goats being separated. He talks about a wedding feast where those who have not been invited, who don't deserve to be there, are shut out from the wedding feast. See, I don't think John the Baptist is using hyperbole here. We cannot claim that Jesus does not include hell in his ministry. Actually, Jesus talks about hell far more than most people realize. Actually, I think it's probably because we have something of an overly meek, caricatured vision of Jesus, um, really where we just think he's kind of nice. And what we mean by nice is kind of insipid and a little bit friendly and, and you know, loving, but, but not really challenging. Actually, yes, of course, Jesus is the Lamb of God willing to take away the sins of the world, willing to go to the cross. We're going to talk about that. But is to just see him as that is to miss that Jesus is also the Lion of Judah. Also, the Lion of Judah, opposed to evil, coming back to judge the living and the dead with his winnowing fork in his hand, ready to separate those who are opposed to him for eternity. So what are we to make of this separation then? Well, I think one of the reasons why we don't really understand this is because we've forgotten the holiness of God. See, in the Old Testament, we get this picture of God coming through the Old Testament and echoed in the New um, of a God who's absolutely mighty, who's totally pure and good. The idea of holiness, you might have heard that phrase. Holiness really is just the idea that God is set apart, that he is all good, that he is absolutely perfect. And as a result of that holiness, as a result of God's perfection, actually, he cannot, he's not just even opposed to evil, he cannot dwell with evil. He cannot have evil in his presence. Uh, in Exodus chapter 19, uh, God comes down to Mount Sinai. And he comes to give the Ten Commandments to, to Moses. And, he, and it says, I'll read it to you, this um, powerful image of God's glory. Um, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They're at the edge of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Moses goes up on the mountain. What's really interesting is that God tells Moses, don't let anybody else come on the mountain. If they come on the mountain, they will die. God has come down to the mountain, and they cannot go onto the mountain, because if they do, they, they will die. There's a sense of God's holiness, of awe. If I can use a couple of pictures to describe this, imagine God's holiness, his perfection, as, as white paint. You can't put any, if you put any, any other colored paint into that white paint, it's no longer white. It becomes very subtly different. It's the idea that no evil can dwell in God's presence. See, this picture of light and darkness in the New Testament often given to describe goodness and evil. If God is this pure, total light, the minute darkness comes into God's presence, actually that light is dimmed somewhat. You cannot have evil in God's presence. And it's because we don't have that same holy vision of God that we don't feel that. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah comes into God's presence. says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And two he flew. And, called, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah is filled and confronted with this incredible image of God's holiness, of his perfection. And what's Isaiah's response? And I said, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's like the minute he sees God's holiness, he recognizes his own flawedness. He can't come into the presence of God. And there's a, the, the seraphim deal with that. Uh, there's a solution for that. So God cannot be joined with evil. God cannot have evil in his presence. Once we understand that God's perfection, when we understand that God cannot dwell with sin and evil, then we understand why there has to be this separation, why there has to be this judgment of all that is evil and those who pursued it. But I recognize as you hear this, then there'll probably be some measure of puzzlement and perhaps even offense. You say, how does this fit with the love of God? Really, I want to show you actually that I think judgment actually fits precisely with the goodness of God. Actually, it's, a consistent, it's entirely consistent and in fact essential to the love of God. First way I would say that is that if God doesn't judge, actually, if, if there's no judgment in God, if there's no justice in God, actually that God doesn't really love his people. See, the opposite of love isn't judgment or anger, it's apathy or disinterest. If God sees evil, if God sees one man visiting evil on another and just goes, meh, just, just ignores that evil, actually that's not the loving thing to do at all. That's quite the opposite of love. That's disinterested, that's apathetic, that's not loving. Say, forgive me, but say your sister was raped. And, you know, the judge, they've found, they've found the guy, and, they, and, the, and the rapist is in the dock, and the judge turns to the rapist, says, you deserve 20 years, but I'm going to let you out for free. You'd be outraged. You say, where is the justice in that? Just consider the, um, the cries of, of, of anguish, really, of, you know, that we've had a history now, a kind of track record in this culture of um, a few celebrities who've per per perpetrated real horrific child abuse, things like that, and then they've gone to their grave without any justice. 
You know, no one, Jimmy Savile, one example of a guy who, who perpetrated horrific injustice, but for the whole of his time, no one called him out. Right? No, no punishment. He received no punishment. Think of the anguish of injustice there and the victims must have felt as they thought, not only has Jimmy done this to me, but he, he, there's no justice. He's never been called to account. Of course, we who believe in a justice and a judgment of God take comfort in that. There's something intuitive inside of us that actually a lack of justice is wrong. Evil deserves to be punished. We have it in our justice system. It's written into our justice system that when people do evil, there must be a restitution. There must be a punishment. Just think about for a moment. I watched a prison documentary, um, and I don't know if you know anything about our prisons in this country, but supposedly, for newspapers to be believed, there's a real crisis in our prisons right now. There's um, a real lack of rule of law. And I watched a documentary of these gangs kind of just bullying and victimizing these people in prison. And you watch it and you think, there's a total lack of authority. There's a total breakdown in authority. There's no one in control, and that's what the reports have said. And, and my point is, when you see that, that's a terrifying picture, where there's no authority, no justice, no uh, rule of law. That's not a place you want to be. Where evil flourishes, that's not an attractive prospect. And so we actually we need the justice of God. Actually, I'd go further and say, actually, we all desire that evil would end. When we look around the world, we see great moral evil, murder, war, exploitation, uh, destruction of lives. Even closer to home, we see broken relationships and um, fight for control, ego-destroying workplace relationships, hatred, judgment of others. We saw all sorts of both sin out there and in here. And actually, we long for that evil to be eradicated. Now, I, I, I recognize that not many of us on a day-to-day feeling kind of go, oh, I wish evil didn't exist, probably because we've just kind of... Um, accepted its presence in our culture, accepted its reality. But actually, if I was to offer you to wave a magic wand and to say, I'm going to get rid of evil, I think everyone would say, absolutely, yes. They would want that in a second. In fact, that's, I think, one of the reasons why many people love apocalyptic films. These ideas, you know, like uh, 28 Days Later, or that kind of thing. There's always that, I, I don't know about you, I love these films because it's always like, well, what will happen when you press the reset button? When you've just got a small group of people, like culture's been reset. Of course, the reality we always see is that there's still brokenness, there's still sin, there's still broken relationships. Actually, you reset it. It isn't the culture, actually. It's the what's inside their hearts. So actually, when we, when we hear, and this is the promise of the Bible, that one day there'll be a day when evil is destroyed, that God will dwell with his people, there'll be no more sin, there'll be, there'll be love for one another, there'll be genuine loving relationships, people will love God and love each other truly. And it describes the picture of the lion lying down with the lamb. There's that picture of total peace. When you hear that, many of us are cheering Jesus on. We're saying, yes, bring an end to evil, please, soon. Jesus, come. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Until we realize that evil is inside each one of us. And actually, to get rid of that evil requires the destruction of ourselves. See, for many of us, when we think about evil being destroyed, we think of a group of people over here, you know, that bad 10% or whatever it is, over there that we, yeah, separate them off, destroy them off. But, but we don't think that that, it requires to, for us, has implications for us. But actually, when we really look inside of ourselves, we see the same evil that we see out there is right in here. The same desires. I've got this wonderful uh, guy, Alexander Sholtsenitsyn. He was a um, prisoner in a Russian gulag, um, and he was, uh, you know, kind of punished under the communist regime. And he, uh, it's very easy when you're in that sort of environment to kind of look at your captors and say, they are evil, and I am good. But that's not the conclusion he comes to. He said, this is a fascinating quote, he said, if only it were so simple, 
If only there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds, and it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Actually, when we recognize this intractable problem of evil within us, actually then suddenly judgment becomes a much more concerning reality. Because to destroy evil is to necessitate our own destruction. Because who of us, none of us can consider ourselves blameless. And I think actually, when it really comes down to it, our opposition, our aversion, our repulsion towards judgment actually comes out of almost an intuitive recognition of this fact. See, judgment, or justice, should I say, feels very different depending on your position towards it. Your perspective on judgment and justice is entirely dependent on your position. If you're a victim, justice feels wonderful. Justice is great, great, fantastic. There'll be justice for what I've done. But if you're the perpetrator, justice is not an attractive prospect. So actually, I think something of, if you look at our world around, you'll see that actually many of us are very pro-judgment. We live in a world that probably has more judgment in it than ever before. Just go on Twitter for five minutes and you'll see somebody judging somebody else. We're all so quick to put labels and judgments on others. You read through the newspaper column online, every single one of those comment articles is judging somebody for something and making an argument for their own position. Judgment is full, in our, it's absolutely full in our culture. The difference is, the reason we reject the judgment of God is because we recognize that we're not, we're not doing the judging, we're the ones being judged. Actually, our aversion to Jesus' winnowing fork is because we don't want it to be true. We recognize it's true, perhaps, but it, and that we are on the receiving end of this judgment. We have skin in the game. We're not a disinterested party going, I wonder whether that's true or not. Actually, this judgment has huge implications for us. And so we don't want it to be true. You know, uh, there was a time a long ago when, not long ago, but a time a little while ago when people would have said, religion is some kind of opium of the people. This is obviously from Karl Marx. And he says, you know, basically, it's a way of the, the, those in charge to keep the workers down and to suppress their rights. And, um, you know, they'll be hopeful for this long time, one day, this, 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 this hope and this perfection. Um, so we'll keep them in bad conditions until then. But actually, I think it's the exact opposite now. Uh, there was a Polish Nobel Prize winning poet called Czeslaw Milos, um, who wrote a remarkable essay, The Discreet Charms of Nihilism. In it, he remembers how Marx had called religion the opiate of the people because it promised of an afterlife. Marx said it led the poor and the working class to put up with unjust social conditions. But Milos continued, and now we are witnessing a transformation. A true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of, our, of thinking that our betrayals, our greed, our cowardice, our murders are not going to be judged. But all religions recognize that our deeds are imperishable. Our very resistance to judgment is a recognition of our guilt before that judgment. Because when we, rec we recognize that we're on the receiving end, and we'd actually rather judgment not exist, because if there is no judgment, then there are no consequences for how I live. You cannot simply deny your way out of judgment. If it's true, it's true whether you deny it or not. You will still face it one day. You can't pretend it's not true. One preacher put it like this. Ignoring the notion that God will judge is like sleeping when your house is on fire. There's a sense to which you cannot deny the reality if this is true. So as we're confronted with the holiness of God and the reality of, human, of the human condition, 
you might well ask, how is it possible that any can stand before God? Or really, in the, using the picture that John the Baptist is giving us today, how can there be any wheat? How is it not all chaff? And that brings me on to my second point. Don't worry, these two points are much shorter. Um, my second point, Holy Spirit wants to be with you. The Holy, Holy Spirit, God wants to be with you. Alongside the promise of judgment is the reality that God wants to be with you. You see, John's distinguishing mark of a Jesus is not just that he, is, uh, that he will bring judgment, but will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, of course, these two ideas sound a little bit disconnected in our minds. What's the, what's the Holy Spirit got to do with judgment? Of course, actually, they, they're united by this common truth that God has come to be present with his people. And they'll either respond positively to that and respond to that invitation to his presence, or they'll, accept, or they'll uh, choose to be apart from him. See, Jesus is, really, John the Baptist is making a distinction. He's saying, look, I can only point to God. Actually, Jesus is God himself who has the ability to bring God's presence here by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is literally God present with us. And of course, this is only a picture of the future, that one day all those who follow Christ will be with him for eternity. See, what I think John is referring to is Pentecost. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, when uh, the disciples were gathered in the upper room and the Holy Spirit falls on them and there are tongues of fire on their heads. They're anointed with tongues of fire. It's a, a, obviously a picture, but... Um, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak all sorts of languages, and the people around them are, 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 are astonished. And actually, many of them are drawn towards God. Actually, um, the, the prophet Joel had spoken about this time when, when God would one day come and visit his people by his Spirit. He would pour out his Spirit in a profound way. This is how he describes it. He said, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. See, this promise that he will come and dwell in his people by his spirit. And with that presence comes assurance, comes peace, comes security, comes the knowledge that God is with us. See, people have longed for many generations to, to, to see God. And actually, Jesus is saying not only is he God in the flesh, but also he leaves his spirit with us so that we are with God. And of course, that's just a pointer to the reality that we'll be with God for eternity. In fact, it's described like this in, in Revelation 21 as, the, as a picture, really, of what that looks like, what that means. It said, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Actually, the gift of his spirit is just a down payment, just a, an initial um, gift pointing to the actual ultimate reality that those who follow and trust in Christ will be with him for eternity. And of course, this points that, that, that very reason for your existence, that you are made for a relationship with God. You are made to be in communion with him. So we come to a, something of a paradox as we seek to answer the question, is God for you or against you? And in one sense, we say, yes, God is against you. You've sinned against him. You stand under judgment. You cannot come into the presence of God, and you deserve to be cut off from him for eternity. And yet we also see the truth, the reality, just glimpsed in this verse, but actually much bigger, much much wider as you go through the rest of the New Testament, that God is for you, that he loves you, that he desires to be with you, that he sent his son to be with you, that he's given you his Holy Spirit as a down payment and one day will be with you for eternity or, or longs to be with you for eternity. 
So he's both for you and against you. And I think some might say, well, how is that possible? But I think that's exactly the picture the New Testament is giving us. He both loves you, and yet also his anger is kindled against you in your sin. To love someone doesn't mean you're not angry with them. In fact, quite the opposite. Often if you do love someone, it's very, poss- very easy to get angry with them. In the sense that if you love someone and you see them ruining themselves, you see them on a path of self-destruction, say you're a parent and you see your child destroying their life, you know, doing all sorts of things, you get angry. And then your anger is actually a sign that you love that person. Becky Manley Pippert puts it like this. God's wrath is not like a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. We see both these pictures, both this love and this anger kindled against us. So how do we then resolve this paradox? How do we answer this question? How how do we experience, how do we realize the real love of God in the context of what I've described? How does anyone receive and dwell in his love when we deserve his anger? Well, John doesn't mention it specifically here, but the resolution of this tension is the crescendo of Christ's ministry. It's his death on the cross. The cross is the meeting place for God's love and his wrath. His love for humanity and his wrath towards them. See, Christ willingly embraces the cross, willingly goes and dies on the cross, not just as a mark of, of a sacrificial, uh, not just as a mark of uh, his love, but also to absorb the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus experiences the anger that we deserve. Jesus experiences that anger for, on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's been cut off from the Father. He's absorbing the rejection and separation that we deserve. And out of his love for us, Christ is willing to take that anger so that we can be forgiven and reconciled with God. Jesus is is really dealing with the fact that that there's a requirement for justice. If God is a good God, then there must be justice but also his love for humanity and his desire to give mercy. And the means by which he achieves that is the cross. Jesus dies for us so that he can give us his mercy. One theologian put it like this, Jesus is the judge judged in our place. Jesus is the judge judged in our place. And this is why John can say that judgment belongs to Christ. In most religions, judgment is a a weighing of your good deeds versus your bad deeds. But judgment in Christianity is very different to that. In one sense, we have a much lower view of humanity. We say, actually, no one can stand before God. No one can justify themselves by their own deeds. But at the same time, we have a much greater hope, not based on, have I done enough to offset what I've I've done against God? No, actually, we have Christ's sacrifice, a sure and certain hope that because of what Christ has done, those who call on his name, those who believe in his name, have received his uh, sacrifice on our behalf. And there's no more anger kindled against them. There's an assurance there that they can belong to God's family. That's why in the the passage, John can describe them as as his wheat. They're his now. There's There's no doubting. Have I done enough? Those people who trust in Christ have become his wheat. So the question to lay before you when really to answer the question, is God for or against you, is not, have you lived a good life? Which is the the way that almost anyone will think about it in our culture. The question laid before you is, have you... received the sacrifice that Christ has made on your behalf? Have you received the forgiveness of God through Christ? Which brings me on to my third and very short final point. Repentance, the right response to Christ. 
repentance, the right response to Christ. See, John is calling the people in this passage, right from the beginning of chapter 3, John is calling the people to repent, to repair. But really, often that word repent is not really very well understood in our culture. You know, you think of repent, you think of like penance, you think of maybe little um, act of kind of holy devotion or some kind of way of penance. You know, you've heard the idea of penance. Actually, the repent here is much bigger than that. Really, it means to be, to be totally converted over to Christ. It's a total change in direction. Actually, that's why baptism, we're going to see Jessie in a moment, we're going to see her die to her old life. As she lives, that's, that's the picture of baptism. You're being lowered into the water. It's a death to your old life. That's a total change in direction. You're saying absolutely no to your old life, and it's then arising to a new life in Christ. So what does this repent, what does this this require, what does this repentance mean? Well, I think it means receiving the forgiveness that Christ offers. It means trusting him that you're forgiven. And it also means a desire to obey him and to follow him, to turn your life over to him. Because then you can say, I've become his wheat, that I've been adopted into Christ's family because of what Christ has done on the cross. And so your life then starts to reflect that reality. So this baptism really is a celebration. Actually, when Jesse comes out of the water, she is... And actually, when she trusts in Christ, really not, but it's an outward symbol of the work that, she, that God's already done. Actually, she's able to say, I am confident, I am absolutely certain that I am forgiven. There's a, an assurance there, a, a trust and a knowledge of God's goodness, and that she is in his family, that she doesn't have to doubt. So this warning from John really should leave us in two places. If you've turned your life over to him, if you've received the forgiveness that Christ offers, it should lead us with a tremendous gratitude, a tremendous knowledge of his assurance, safe in the knowledge that God is for you, that he's made his home with you, and that his, that his anger is not kindled against you, that, his, that he has no anger towards you, that he loves you, and that you're his child, that Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins, that you're actually now able to experience the fullness of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and being led by him. That's the promise that John's talking about. But if you're apart from God, if you haven't trusted and responded to Christ, then I think it actually should lead you a little bit, well, not just a little bit, it should lead you fearful of judgment. It should acknowledge that, that God is both angry and he loves you, that he longs for you to be with him. He longs for you to turn your life over to him. But right now, he stands opposed to you until you turn and receive the forgiveness that Christ offers. He desires that you turn your life over to him. Otherwise, you face eternity away from him. And of course, there's always the opportunity to turn to Christ. It's exactly what Jesse's story will attest to. Before I pray for us, I just want to say one more thing, really. is that there's no middle ground in this. There's no kind of half in, half out. There's a total willingness to trust Christ. There's a total, there's like a, what I'm trying to speak against, really, is this idea where you hold Jesus at arm's length. And you say, maybe I'm interested, maybe I'm drawn towards him. Actually, no, Christ is calling an a repentance which means a radical turning your life over to him. A response which says, I want everything about you, Christ. And it's, it's not possible to hold him at arm's length. Let me pray for us. And of course, if this is you, by the way, if you hear this and you're not a Christian, you'd love, we'd love to pray with you, we'd love to talk to you about this. I'm just going to thank God, really, for this reality of this wonderful goodness in Christ that he's... Um, He's done this for us. Lord, we want to approach you as the holy God that you are, with the knowledge that 
that you are so holy and good that none can dwell in your presence except for the blood of Christ. Lord, we want to thank you for that wonderful gift of your blood and of your sacrifice on the cross, Christ. We want to come to the altar now. We want to celebrate your forgiveness. We want to live in the full repentance, a life consecrated over to you, a life celebrating the forgiveness that you brought us for those who are in Christ. Lord, would you come and work in our lives? Would you come and fill us with your spirit? Thank you. Thank you for the enormous privilege that we can dwell in your presence and that you've come to dwell in us by your spirit. Lord, we want to celebrate that fact today. We want to worship you and give you the glory that you deserve. I want to thank you for your precious love, precious sacrifice, Christ, precious gift to us of your life on the cross that we can be in your presence for all eternity. Amen.